We have come to this time of year when uh, we uh, have our Advent series, and this year for our Advent series, we're turning to Isaiah 40, and we'll be spending the whole month in that chapter of Scripture, and I invite you to turn there now. We begin uh, this morning, and I'll invite my Father to come and bring God's Word to us. Isaiah chapter 40. Your pastor uh, said he always kind of wanted to do an Advent series with another pastor going back and forth, and so since I'm retired, it worked out. So, so I'll, I'll be preaching today, and Lord willing, two weeks from today, and then your pastor will do the other weeks. Isaiah chapter 40, we're looking at verses 1 through 8. This is God's word. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, Cry out. And he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its lovingness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And I'm going to read a couple verses to us also then from the Gospel according to Luke chapter 3. Um, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness, and he went out to all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, please help us understand your word. Help us take your word to heart. Strengthen your servant here and your servants in every place on this Lord's day. That we might faithfully and effectively, by the power and grace of your spirit alone, preach the gospel of your son and teach your holy truth. We pray that you would open up our hearts, each one of us, to receive that word, and thereby to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or if there are any in the hearing of your word today who have gathered with your people but who do not have faith in Christ, we pray that you would, in your mercy, draw them to yourself by the power of the Holy Spirit using your word. We pray all of this to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I found it interesting, even from when I was a child, I always found this kind of interesting. How much of the world finds a warm, fuzzy feeling from the story of the baby born in Bethlehem. And I'm talking now even about people who don't believe Jesus is who he claimed it to be, don't believe that, that he is who the Bible says he is, they don't believe that he accomplished the work of redemption that he said he accomplished, that the Bible says he accomplished. They don't believe any of that, but they still look forward to the warm, fuzzy feeling they get when they hear the story of a baby being born in Bethlehem. The book of Isaiah is speaking about comfort here. And let me tell you, and most of you already know this, if not all of you, it's a lot more than a warm, fuzzy feeling that lasts for one short Advent season. It is an eternal comfort that we have because this comfort is divine comfort that comes to us because because that baby was born in Bethlehem and because he did accomplish the redemptive work that the Bible says he accomplished. I often would refer to Isaiah when I was pastoring uh, in New Hampshire uh, as a fifth gospel account. Now, what was interesting about that is the fact that it's, it's an Old Testament book and yet it is so explicit in speaking about Jesus' conception and birth about his life of righteousness and truth, about his crucifixion for our sins and his resurrection from the dead and even his second coming. And in both parts of the book, because I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, there is, in, there's chapters 1 through 39, chapters 40 through 66. And uh, there's, 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 um, it's clear that there's a break there, that the, there was a part one and a part two that Isaiah gives us. And in both parts, all those things I've just said uh, are at least hinted at and often explicitly mentioned. Maybe you've heard this story before. I've heard two different um, accounts of this, where a Christian is witnessing to a friend of Jewish background. And they quoted from Isaiah 53 and, uh, in that witnessing. And the, the Jewish friend would say, oh, no, no, that's your New Testament. Uh, that's talking about Jesus dying. I'm, I've only hold of the Old Testament. And the Christian had to say, no, actually, that's a prophecy seven centuries before Jesus died. And it's interesting, of course, that the Jewish friend would immediately see Jesus in that text when he wasn't told when it had been given. That's how explicit this is. Now in this, um, in this second half, or chapters 40 through 66, there's, there's an introduction here in, in chapter 40. And that's what you'll be looking at this month. And uh, here we look not at, again, not at a comfort that's a warm emotional feeling that lasts for a short time, but we're looking at eternal comfort that God gives us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. When we turn to Jesus Christ in faith, many of us have experienced that firsthand, this comfort that comes in the good news of Jesus Christ. Pastor Tomlinson um, has entitled this series, Comfort for Christmas. And this morning we're looking at comfort is proclaimed and therefore, it is promised. God would not proclaim something or have us proclaim it to you unless it was um, by implication something he's promising to give to you. 
if you will believe his word as it goes forth, this word of comfort. Now, in verses 1 and 2, God's comfort is to be proclaimed. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received double from the Lord's hand. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. God is the speaker here. Um, and because God is the one commanding someone else to proclaim his comfort, that comfort, therefore, is guaranteed. God is eternal. Uh, God is faithful. God is the God of truth. And if he says he'll give comfort to all who look to him in the way he says, he will indeed give that comfort. And he commands certain ones. I say certain ones because in the original language of the Old Testament, Hebrew, and this is true also in the, the Greek language of the New Testament, and this is true of some of the languages some of you have studied other than English. In an imperative, the form will tell you that he's saying you in particular or you as a group of people. There's, you, there, there's a number. There's even masculine and feminine. This is masculine plural. So though we know from the gospel accounts that John the Baptist is one of the most clear and most important uh, fulfillments of what's being promised here, the, this command to proclaim comfort, he's not alone in speaking that comfort. And it's interesting, speak comfort is literally, in the Hebrew, speak to the heart. So we, we've translated it, speak comfort. It's, it's a good translation. But speak to the heart of Jerusalem. Speak, the NIV has, speak tenderly. Speak earnestly, fervently. Speak sincerely. Speak transparently. Speak firmly. Speak comfort to the heart of those whose hearts are grieving and in pain. Who are the speakers of this comfort? Well, uh, the Old Testament prophets, in looking ahead to the coming of Jesus Christ, proclaim a comfort that was coming. Uh, the New Testament apostles, and they gave us the New Testament, uh, they and their associates, that they proclaimed comfort to us. Right in the middle of that, the last Old Testament prophet, and in a way, a forerunner of our New Testament preaching of the gospel, is John the Baptist. And as, we, as, I, as you saw when I read from Luke chapter 3, you find this also in the Gospel of Mark, this text is explicitly applied to John the Baptist. But really, all ministers of the gospel are called to speak this comfort. I, I, when I was called to preach the gospel, I was called to preach this comfort, to cry out comfort to God's people in Jesus Christ. So was your pastor, Pastor Tomlinson. And this is true of all ministers of the gospel. But in a way, every one of you who believe the gospel, who have experienced that comfort, by your life and your words on a daily basis are called to cry out to others, comfort, comfort. There is comfort in Jesus Christ, God's Son. Well, who are the recipients of this, this divine comfort? In verse 1, it's, God says, it's my people. And we see as we read on in chapters 40 through 66, the my people are the people of faith. The people who we will know after the fact, after they believe, are the elect. Those who believe, and this is actually an expression the uh, major prophets use in more than one place, those who tremble before God's word. And as they recognize, this is God's word. 
And, and they tremble with awe before God speaking. And so those who tremble before this message of comfort and therefore embrace that message reverently and with faith, they are the ones God's speaking to. In verse 2, it's Jerusalem. And that would, it's a sermon in itself to speak of how the whole concept of Israel, of being a Jew, of um, a heavenly Mount Zion, a Jerusalem, the, which was used as a part for the whole, the capital referred to the people of Israel, how it finds its ultimate fulfillment in both Jews and Gentiles in the church of Jesus Christ. Jews and Gentiles who believe the gospel. They are the true heavenly Jerusalem. And ultimately, there is an immediate application and fulfillment of this um, which I'll come to in a few minutes, but ultimately it is in the gospel that this is all fulfilled, and it's in the church of Jesus Christ. God emphasizes in verse 1 the necessity of this proclamation of comfort and the reality of this comfort. He emphasizes it by, re by, uh, he emphasizes it by repetition. Comfort, yes, comfort my people. He's it's like he's underlining uh, the word. And notice he doesn't just uh, say, you know, say nice things, but he says, cry out in verse 2. Cry out to her. This is to be an earnest proclamation of God's comfort. God is saying to his spokesman, be earnest, be diligent, make yourself heard. And also, he's saying to us who hear, this, this, is, this is true. You can rely on this. God being so emphatic himself is, is being emphatic that we can trust that he will give us this comfort as we trust in the one he sent to give us comfort. Now God defines the content of this comfort in the last part of verse 2. Why should God's people be comforted? And the outline I'm going to give you here very quickly is not original with me, but when I preached through Isaiah as a pastor many years ago, I, I believe this outline works. Uh, let me just say where it says, that her warfare is ended, this is why we, we are comforted, that her iniquity is pardoned, and literally it's the same uh, connective there, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And New King James uh, translated it the third time as far because they're understanding that those other things work because we've received from the Lord's hand double for all our sins. Well, let me just mention this. From chapter 40, verse 12, through chapter 48, I believe you can summarize what's said by God prophesying of how in Christ our warfare is ended. And in chapters 49 through 57, you could summarize that as uh, that there is comfort because our iniquity is pardoned. And in chapters 58 through 66, I believe you can summarize that as this is all true because God's people have received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So I believe that Isaiah is giving us the outline for the rest of his book there. And again, that's not original with me. Now, what is, he, what is the content of this comfort? And I'm going to try to cover this as quickly as I can because I want to look at all eight verses. But there are three things here. One, we are comforted because the warfare of God's people will be ended. 
We're comforted because of the promise of peace. We live in such a troubled time, but really since Adam and Eve fell into sin, it's been a troubled time. And I remember um, uh, some years back, well, probably 10 years back, they were having Middle Middle East peace talks, and a young high school boy that attended our church as a visitor said, we need to really pray this works. And I didn't want to throw water on his enthusiasm, but my whole life we've been having Middle East peace talks, and sometimes it seems to get worse instead of better. There, the only real peace in the end of the day that lasts is the peace that we have because of the comfort, Christmas comfort, because of Jesus Christ, God's Son. And uh, Judah was in the midst of a, a time of great turmoil here. Um, because there was a lot of warfare going on. Northern Israel, see, has been, during Isaiah's day, is taken into captivity. Judah is full of trouble because they're not walking with the Lord either. They're starting to depart too. And eventually what's going to happen, and Isaiah prophesies of this, Jeremiah, you know, speaks of it. Babylon's going to come and conquer Judah. This is after Isaiah's day. But Isaiah prophesies of it about 100 years ahead of time. Uh, Judah's going to be taken captive by Babylon, and the whole nation of Israel is going to be shut down for 70 years. At the end of that 70 years, there is limited comfort in the fact that God, according to prophecy in Isaiah, allows the Jews who want to to come back to the promised land and to reestablish partially uh, the nation of Israel, still ruled over, though, by a pagan king. And so there's a partial fulfillment of this comfort, but it's only temporary, and it's only a political and national kind of comfort or restoration. And as you read through these chapters, it's clear that that he has a lot more in mind than just that, that peace that is temporary and partial at the time of Israel being restored at the end of the 70 years. He's talking about the peace we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. The warfare, our warfare ended in Christ. In uh, Romans 5 verse 1 we read, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you've trusted in Christ, if you're justified uh, through faith, and you are if you've trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior, then you're at peace with God. And he's not talking there about a warm, mushy feeling of peace. Uh, that, that will come to you at times throughout your Christian life, an a, a inner kind of peace. But that's not what he's talking about there. You, you can have no uh, feeling of peace and be at peace with God. We're talking about an objective relationship with God. No matter how I feel at any given moment, where I'm at peace with God through Jesus Christ. And by the way, though I believe the emphasis here is on the warfare with God being removed because our sin is dealt with. I believe that when we're at peace with God, we can begin to learn how to live at peace with one another. And actually we learn to live more at peace with ourselves, knowing our sins are forgiven. And that's where that, that uh, inner assurance and that emotional aspect often enters in. Not because I'm, I see religion as mainly this inner emotional feeling but because when I approach God in Christ and know that I'm reconciled to him and my sins are pardoned, 
then I began to have a true inner peace as well. But here he's thinking especially of our warfare with God being ended. And that's the first part of the comfort. And that's based on the second part. So he's starting with the, the final result, I believe, and working his way back to the, uh, the, the very cause. The second part is that her iniquity is pardoned. You're at peace with God because your iniquity is pardoned. The iniquities of God's people are pardoned. Now, pardon is a, is a really a very wonderful notion in our culture. If the president for a, a, a federal crime or your governor for a state crime pardons you, it's as if it never happened. It's as, you know, I, I had a friend that had been in prison as a young man. Uh, he was about my age. Um, and years later, he, after he was saved, he became a minister of the gospel. And they wanted him to come and, and speak. He had a prison ministry, and they wanted him to speak to some prison guards who were Christians up in Canada who had invited him to come speak. But he, he, he had been a felon. He had been a convicted felon. He had been in prison, and he, he couldn't cross the border. And so some of us appealed to the governor of our state, because it was in the state of New Hampshire this had happened, and the governor pardoned him. And then it was, uh, from a legal viewpoint, it had never happened. It had not happened. His crime had not happened. His conviction had not happened. His time in prison had not happened. From a legal viewpoint, that was all wiped out. And that's very close to the idea of pardon in the New Testament and in, in, in God's word as a whole. Actually, the New Testament word to, for to forgive uh, in its etymology, the one we normally translate forgive, means to send away or dismiss or to release, like releasing a prisoner. And the idea is, is that our guilt is sent away or that we're released from the guilt of our sin. Uh, either one of those two could be the idea. Uh, our, our iniquities are pardoned. Uh, sin is called iniquity in the Old Testament. Uh, using this particular word, that's the idea of what is twisted or crooked. I think in one of the hymns we read, it might have used the word crooked there. Um, or else there was one I was listening to this week. I, can't, I get mixed up sometimes now as I'm old. But there was a hymn that talked about the crookedness. And, and iniquity stresses the fact that God has given a straight standard. And what our sin is, is that we've not stayed with God's standard. We fall out on this side or that side or... Uh, we, we just, we're not with God's standard. We do things he says not to do. We don't do the things he says to do. And only God can give an absolute standard, and he has done so. And we have violated what he said is right. Uh, and all our sins, all our iniquities are pardoned when we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Pardoned as if they had never happened. So we have peace with God. Uh, warfare is ended. Uh, because we have pardoned, our sins are forgiven, and thirdly then, uh, that we're, we receive comfort uh, because she, Jerusalem, has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is paradise restored. The paradise that was lost by our sin is restored by this one who's our comfort that's promised to us. Uh, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And I'm, I'm thinking of put, putting together a sermon just on this idea of receiving double from the Old Testament prophets. But let me just 
summarize it very uh, shortly here, briefly. Sometimes when it talks about receiving double for sin, it means the full punishment for sin. And sometimes when he speaks of receiving uh, double, he's speaking of the, the full blessing of salvation. It's not the ideal that, you know, I deserve five years for my sin, I get ten years. It's not that kind of double. It's the, 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 the Hebrews would use this idea of double for the full thing. Nothing's left out. That is, everything our sins deserved, uh, Christ took upon himself. The full price. There, there's nothing left unpaid by Christ. And therefore, everything he deserves, as far as the blessing belonging to the sinless and righteous ultimate son of man is imputed to us in our justification and is given to us in our glory. We receive full blessing that he deserves. And I think here in this text, he, he, he isn't explicit what he means double for all our sins in the sense that he's not just saying the double punishment or the double blessing, but I think we have the double blessing because the punishment has been doubly or fully fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. And this, of course, is especially fulfilled in the gospel. Jesus Christ dies, the perfect and sinless man, who's also the infinite and eternal God, paying the full price of our sins, suffering eternal hell for us in his six hours on the cross. And therefore, all the eternal and absolute blessing and reward that he earned as the sinless God-man by his absolute keeping of the law in our place and his life and death is the blessing and reward given with a certainty to all who trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and only Savior. So truly here is comfort beyond compare. Uh, peace with God because our sins are pardoned, because we have a Savior who's restored paradise by uh, paying double fully for our sin and giving us fully his uh, perfect righteousness. And so we move on then. I believe he breaks this down further uh, to, in verses 3 through 5, God's glory is revealed to all mankind in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I, I kept reading Jesus back into verses 1 and 2. Of course, I do that partly because the New Testament tells me I'm to do that. But as we read on, what's happening in verses 3 through 5 is he's explaining how all this has come about. And that's because God's glory has been revealed. And God's glory has been revealed in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. That baby born in Bethlehem who grows up and dies for sinners and rises again is God in the flesh. And we, we, we actually see God in that person. We actually see God in his glory. The glory of Jehovah God, he says in verse 5, will be revealed. This is literally will be uncovered. The Apostle Paul speaks of how before regeneration, before the word of God and God's grace comes to us by God's grace, um, it says if our eyes are covered over and we can't see what's there. God is glorious. But uh, first of all, our finiteness covers God's glory from our eyes until God enables us uh, to see who he really is. And that's before we even start talking about sin. Sin especially hides the glory of God from us. 
And this is why it is only by sovereign grace that you know, God has to take away the covering so that we can see his glory in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians and says that in the preaching of the gospel, it's like in the beginning where God said, let there be like in the preaching of the gospel. God says to his elect who hear that gospel, let there be light. And finally, they can see the glory of God in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. Many of you have heard of Jonathan Edwards, who actually pastored in our basic area here. And this was one of the themes that Edwards was especially impressed with, by the way. In his writings and his sermons that we've got uh, transcribed for us, he, he can't get over this idea that God actually manifests his glory in a person who came for us and died for us and rose again for us. Jehovah is glorious. Um, the, notice in verse 5, the word Lord's in all capital letters. This is the great I am. This is Yahweh. This is Jehovah, the everlasting God, uh, the covenant-keeping God. And, and he is full of glory. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I've always had a hard time trying to pin down a very specific definition of God's glory. And I, there was actually a very helpful article on this in uh, December's edition of the New Horizons. That's the magazine that, that is put out by the denomination that Pastor Thomas and I are, are pastors in. And um, there's a short article there by one of our pastors, and he says, the reason it's hard for us to, like, to pin down and you know, put the word glory in a little box that we can is because God's glory is so big and so far above us that even trying to define the word that describes his bigness and his greatness, his glory, we have a hard time knowing how to. But one of the ways that glory manifests itself in the scriptures, and glory is God's magnificence in his essence, his magnificence in how he manifests himself. And uh, it's by a shining light, isn't it? in the scriptures that God often manifests his glory. Uh, the Shekinah glory, the, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, uh, God manifested something of his glory to Israel in the wilderness. The cloud of glory, that same cloud of glory, filling the tabernacle that Moses and Aaron built. And uh, the priests couldn't even stay inside the tabernacle the day of dedication because the glory of the Lord filled it. Same thing happened again uh, hundreds of years later when Sol Solomon replaced the tabernacle with the temple. And the same thing happened. The glory of God filled the temple and the priest had to get out of there uh, for that, the rest of that day because uh, we human beings, and special in our, especially in our sinful condition, can't, can't bear under the, the glory of God's glory. Uh, Isaiah and one of his most famous prophecies in chapter 6 of Isaiah says that he saw the glory of the Lord filling the whole temple. Uh, and, and, so, and the glory of God was seen there in that, that glory that filled the temple. Um, Jesus Christ at the Mount of Transfiguration. Hopefully we understand that's the point the gospel writers are making. They're saying that the Shekinah glory is manifested in the face of Jesus Christ. And that for just a few minutes there, the, uh, the 
earthly covering in, in his, his earthly incarnation, um, kind of the, the curtain was drawn back. We saw behind the, the stage, and we see this is, this is God in the flesh. This is the glory of God in, in human nature, in human form, that we see here in Jesus Christ. And of course, when Jesus appeared to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, he appeared as a light that was so bright that it left Saul blinded until divine healing came and restored his sight. This is the glory of God. The glory of God is seen preeminently then in the gospel. In the coming of Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary as a true man without sin. In that birth in Bethlehem. In that sinless and perfectly righteous life the glory of God is seen. In his death. You know, it's harder for us to see it there, but it is there, the glory of God, as the Son of God takes to himself our sin, the guilt of our sin upon himself, and especially, of course, in his resurrection. In the gospel, the good news, Jehovah's glory is revealed. It is uncovered fully. Jehovah is revealed in his glory. But this glory is concealed as far as being properly appreciated, except to those whose eyes have been opened by the grace of the Holy Spirit except to the eyes of faith. It is revealed, this is important, uh, to all flesh, verse 5. That is, all mankind. That's how, how Isaiah uses this word flesh here. By his coming in the flesh, God has made known or revealed his glory. God views this historically true event as clearly substantiated and proclaimed in the gospel so that all flesh on one level, have seen the glory of God objectively, even if they refuse to believe it, even if they refuse uh, in their sin to appreciate it. By the word of God, as that's proclaimed by ministers of the gospel, that reports this, this coming of God in his glory and uh, gives clear proofs of its own divine inspiration. And so in the preaching of the gospel to all nations, God's glory is being revealed and in the Holy Spirit's work in all the elect. My point here that I believe that we find in the text is that God will hold you and me accountable as far as his self-revelation. Someone might say, well, I don't see God in Jesus Christ. I don't, I don't see anything special about the Bible. We won't, you can say that all you want. God has proclaimed in his word that he has given sufficient evidence of all of this. And we are held accountable for what God has made known to us. Whether, we've, whether in our sin we've refused to see it and believe it or not, we're still accountable. In verses, uh, first part of verse 3, the last part of verse 5, God's glory in the Lord Jesus Christ is heralded to all mankind. And we have to understand what a herald was. You know, the king is moving through town, through the city, and you're just in the streets there, maybe shopping, and this guy in fancy outfit comes through and he yells out, uh, the king is coming, the king is coming. Instantly you stop and you maybe either kneel down or you bow your head. When the king goes by, you show the proper respect back during the times of monarchies. That's what a herald was. John the Baptist was the first in this long series of heralds announcing that the king has come that God's glory has been made manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what John is. He's crying out for people to prepare 
because the king has come. And that's what all ministers of the gospel are doing. We're proclaiming the king has come. Make yourself ready. That is, look to the true God in faith, in his word. And uh, precisely it's God's glory revealed in and to us in Jesus Christ that John is proclaiming that we are proclaiming. God, the one who is both God and perfect man, our Savior. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God has shown in our hearts that we could believe the gospel and see his glory in the face of Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 3.18, as we continue to look at Jesus Christ as Christians, looking to the word of Christ, we're being transformed into his image from glory to glory. You see, it's not just so that we are justified through faith that the Holy Spirit works upon us and enables us to see Jesus and believe in him for who he really is, but he, we continue to gaze upon him by the work of the Holy Spirit in us as we continue to look to the word of God and we are sanctified. Has God's glory been revealed to you in such a way that you've understood and believed by Jesus Christ coming into your heart and life uh, that you've trusted in him as your only savior and as the Lord of your life? Well, in verses, uh, the, the last part of verse three and verse four, God's glory is revealed and heralded in the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore it demands preparation on the part of all mankind. Those who hear the voice of the herald are commanded to prepare themselves for the coming of Jehovah God and the appearance of his glory. They are to prepare in the desert a highway, a straight road for Jehovah to come in person to them, verse 3. And this will be done by raising the low places and leveling the high places, by straightening the crooked paths and smoothing the rough ground, verse 4. What's he mean? Well, by repentance. This is what we find with John the Baptist. How does he herald? What kind of herald is he? He says, repent. The Lord has come. The Lord is coming. Repent. Be ready by repentance. The kingdom of heaven came in the person of Jesus Christ in a new and dynamic way, in the way of eternal fulfillment. And so John says, repent. And repent means to turn from your sin and turn towards God by coming to God's word, by putting our, our faith in what God has said. In this case, the comfort that God has promised. Repentance is the flip side of the coin we call faith. Uh, it's an aspect of biblical faith. If I really believe, I turn to him and I turn away from my old life. By God's grace only can we repent and we're commanded to repent. All mankind are commanded to repent though only the elect moved by the Holy Spirit will obey. We're all obligated. What's he mean? Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Our lives are deserts because of our sin. And we're to make a straight path for Jehovah by his grace opening up ourselves to him as we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he comes, he causes rivers of living water to flow in our innermost being, the spirit of life. So we're no longer spiritual deserts. All the valleys of our deficiencies are to be filled that he might come. All the hills and mountains of our pride are to be brought low that he might come. All the crooked aspects of our lives are to be straightened out that he might come. All the rough places due to our transgressions are to be made smooth that he might come. 
That is, we are to repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and his free salvation. So that we are justified by faith and by grace alone. So that God's glory might be our lot and portion forever. So that we might shine forth with his glory forever. That his glory might be revealed in us throughout the never-ending ages of eternity. This is what we have in Jesus Christ. The presence of Jehovah God in our hearts and lives. All by his grace alone. Now, I, the, the text, this part of the text then closes in verses 6 through 8 with the voice. A voice again. Here, um, in verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Here he says, the voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? A voice is to passionately proclaim a particular message. And I identify this voice first with John the Baptist, but again beyond that with the preaching of God's word by all those called in the gospel uh, preaching ministry. I believe that John, in, in a sense, is a representative of all the ministers of the gospel that follow. I know he's the end of the Old Testament prophets, but what is, why is he the end? Because he's proclaiming Messiah has now come. And therefore, he is, in a sense, the beginning of the, the gospel preachers. And um, he, uh, the voice said, cry out, and he said, what shall I cry? These who are commanded to speak forth as God's spokesmen are to preach with all earnestness or with true spiritual passion. They're commanded to cry out, not just speak, but to cry out. And they're commanded to recognize that they are to preach only what God tells them to preach. He said, what shall I cry in verse 6? And then he's given the message. That's really important, isn't it? That we ministers the gospel preach only what God says in his word. Well, we have other content here in verse 6b through 8, uh, where, again, he's quoting the, uh, the Old Testament here, uh, the, uh, the word of God that... Uh, have been given centuries before. And uh, here the message is God's word is eternal and therefore absolutely reliable. Whereas all merely human words are temporal and therefore unreliable. This isn't a different message really than what we have in verse, verse 2b. Verse 2b is the content. What we're being told here is proclaim God's word. And that God's word is that uh, your warfare is ended, your iniquity is pardoned that you're, you receive double from the Lord's hand. And we're being comforted with the fact that we can trust this word of comfort. We can trust it. It's actually, it's the only word we ultimately can trust. Um, the, um, the voice, uh, the messengers of God's word, the voice is to proclaim the unreliability of all that mankind thinks and speaks out of himself. Again, flesh is a common way of referring to human nature, to mankind. Here all flesh means all humankind. All humankind are compared to grass. And the glory of mankind's strength or wisdom or literature or psychology or philosophies is compared to the grass's beauty. Grass withers and its beauty fades and dies. So all mankind will die in all their beauty, their accomplishments, their plans, their thoughts, their deeds eventually fade and die away forgotten in the coming ages. What do you know about your great-grandparents? I know a few facts about my great-grandparents. I, I, don't, I, don't I don't know if they were introverts or extroverts. 
I know, I know almost nothing about them. And uh, yet I know some of mine were Christians. They're not forgotten with the Lord, but, but they're gone from this earthly scene. And who remembers them now? No one uh, remembers them uh, hardly who's still alive on earth. My mom's 92 and she can barely remember some of her, her, uh, her own grandparents. Man's, man dies as far as his earthly life. And all his great plans and all his, you know, actions and words, all of that is gone. It, it, it's like grass withering, the beauty of the grass fading and dying. And all our accomplishments. Why? Because the breath of the Lord will blow upon the grass of mankind and the beauty of man's glory and dry them up and destroy them. The breath of the Lord is ultimately for us as inscripturated word, Second Timothy 3 verse 16. And for fallen mankind, if there's no repentance, God's word is a word of judgment. But by way of stark contrast to human beings and their works, the voice is also to proclaim the absolute reliability and complete dependability of God's eternal word. Uh, the grass withers, the flower fades, he says in verse 8, but the word of our God stands forever. We're not to put our trust in man. We're not to put our trust in ourselves or in others. Not our ultimate trust. Not, you know, I, I trust, I've got to go to the doctor in a few weeks for a bump I've got on my hand. I'll, I'll trust him to know what to do with this, the dumb bump, bump on my hand. Uh, but as far as the things that really matter, the things that, that matter forever, man cannot help me. And he can't deal with my sin. And he can't take away my guilt. And he can't transform my life. And he can't prepare me for eternity. But God's word can. God's word stands forever. God's word cannot be destroyed. God's word will always be fulfilled. It can always be relied on. Peter in, in, um, in his epistle, I think First Peter, he talks about this. We're born again by the word of God. That's the seed that the Holy Spirit plants in our hearts. And he says that word of God never passes away. You know, this new life we have in Christ, we have lasting comfort because it's a life and therefore a comfort that cannot be destroyed. It will never be invalidated. It will never be out of date. There's no shelf life on it so that it's no longer any good. It will always, always be comfort. It will always be life uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's... So we, we look here, we're thinking of the incarnation this month. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And what we have is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. Historical figures of the Old Testament that, that typified him. The ceremonial law that prefigured his sacrifice on the cross. The moral law, it really speaks of him because he's the only one who's ever fulfilled it. And the prophets prophesied of him and of the salvation he would accomplish on behalf of God's chosen people. We have comfort because everything promised that would, would take place when Messiah came has taken place and is taking place because Messiah in Jesus Christ truly has come. God's word, eternal in the heavens, was fulfilled when Jesus Christ came suffered, died, and rose again in behalf of God's people. We can't rely on man or, or man's glory, but we can and we must rely on the God who has already carried out his greatest promise of all. You know, the, 
Old Testament saints waited and waited for Messiah to come, and they're all represented by Simeon, aren't they, in the, in the temple? And Mary and Joseph come into the temple with baby Jesus, and Simeon, we're told, takes baby Jesus up in his arms, and he says, okay, Lord, you did exactly what you said you would do. You know, Simeon wasn't going to die until Messiah came. A special revelation had been given to him. He said, now I can die. Now I can die and go to heaven because you, you've done what you said you would do. Well, he came through the first time. And my friends, he will come through in his promise to come again and his promise to us of eternal glory.